We are going to hop right into some Torah. We're going to do a little bit of reading uh, together, and we're going to be doing some of the processing of what goes on inside of this week's portion. This week's portion is Truma. Uh, it means that we're starting with 26 uh, one. For those of you who don't have a humash at home, uh, we'll read some of it out loud, uh, so that you have a chance to hear what this portion is all about. Um, inside of Truma, uh, just in the last piece of Triennial, so in chapter 25, you have a very famous piece of text. You have Asuli Hamidash Vishakhamti Vitocham, which is, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Uh, this is words that many people know through, uh, Christian hymn and other spaces, but it originates in our text in this space about the Mikdash. And I say that because I, I think it's a necessary thing to think about as we go into studying this piece of our text. I'll say that again. The piece that comes earlier is a recognition that we too can be sanctuary that we can be a holy space. And there is something really beautiful about the, like, symbolism of that. And then you move into the rest of Truma, which gets into really fine details about how to build the tabernacle, how to decorate the tabernacle, how to elevate the tabernacle. So uh, does anyone want to read a couple of the first lines of Exodus 26? As for the tabernacle, make it of ten strips of cloth. Make these of fine twisted linen of blue, purple, and crimson yarns with the design of cherubim worked into them. The length of each cloth shall be 28 cubits, and the width of each cloth shall be four cubits, all the cloths to have the same measurements. Five of the cloths shall be joined to one another, and the other five cloths shall be joined to one another. Make loops of blue wool on the edge of the outermost cloth of the one set, and do likewise on the edge of the outermost cloth of the other set. Okay, if we were to keep going, we would get another 20-plus lines of similar details inside of how to decorate and elevate this space. We're talking about different colored cloth. We're talking about not only having them as cloth, but what else? Having them literally as wool, as yarn, as as thread to be able to do something with it. Which should lead us to the first question. Why were the Israelites traveling with thread? Right? We, we ask this question, and we've seen it in other spaces, when they talk about uh, taking from the Egyptians when it comes to their gold and their jewelry and all these pieces, and we've read that in prior weeks. But this is actually a little bit different. I want to ask, why, why do they have thread? They were crackers, no. <laughs> okay, well, that, is piece, that is a part of this. Really? <laughs> right? There, there is something to be said here, and we're going to get to it in later Torah when it gets to the idea of, like, we recognize the artist, and we recognize the artist all the way back in Torah, which is important because sometimes we question the the professions that aren't, you know, the classic professions, but we have in our text artist. They're recognized as a profession as far back as we can go. But why, okay, fine jewelry, I can get behind that, but what about thread? Is it so the, the pieces of cloth? Okay. They were, they were like, we're going to need some good clothes when we're walking through the desert. Yeah. 
gonna, is it symbolic of reparation, of pulling things together? Oh, that's nice. That's beautiful. Yeah. That is lovely. Yeah. Uh, Jody, let's, let's hear it. Uh, why would that be different than all the other party gifts, the parting gifts that we took? Why would they not take thread? They took fabric. Yeah, I, I want us to walk through this together. We, we are on our way out of Egypt. We feel that we've been wronged and we take their jewelry. Okay. But we, but, but then we, we take, sure, their gold. Yeah. And a little bit of their precious metals. Okay. But make sure to grab the yarn on your way out. We took a lot of fabric. Well. Sometimes we talk about the fabrics. Other times we imply that they're pre-woven with, you know, it's the fabrics that we took. But yes, they took fabric. And as we go through this portion, we're going to find other things that we claim to take as well, right? If we scroll down, uh, let's go to line seven. Who can read line seven to me? Here, I will screen share so that uh, those on the Zoom can also have a chance to to read line seven. Verse seven. Verse seven. Anyone can jump in who wants to. Oh, wait, you're all muted. That's fair. <laughs> you shall then make clothes of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Make the cloth 11 in number. And we're going to scroll down a little bit further. We have the loops, uh, the 50 copper clasps. And I can get behind a lot of these pieces. I think that's fair. And now go down to line 14. Who can read 14, 15, and 16 for us? And then make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of dolphins skins above. That's interesting. You shall make the planks for the tabernacle of acacia wood upright. The length of each plank should be 10 cubits and the width of each plank a cubic and a half. Okay, perfect. Now, who can remember... The ab, like, what do we ballpark a cubit to be? The, the hand to the elbow. The finger to the elbow. The elbow. Is a cubit. Imagine 10 cubits. Not a small piece of wood. Now I can get behind the idea that we threw in a bag some clothing materials. Well, Jody, figuring we're going to have to go at some point, be somewhere. We have the precious metals. But who flees with logs? And who flees with very specific, probably not a dolphin, not a direct translation, but some type of unusual skin, right? It's almost as if when we read Torah, we have an obligation, right? Our obligation is to be discerning readers. So the first thing I'll ask you as we're being discerning readers is, is this real? Is this real? Did the Israelites walk through the desert with everything they could possibly have needed waiting for God to pick the the list of items they would need for the tabernacle? Did George Washington chop down a cherry tree? Okay. Same issue. It's, 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 it's a story. Right. And if the story was straightforward, we wouldn't still be talking about it. So, so I will, I will give that to you. However, I think that falls short of the way in which we're supposed to read it. I actually think in this moment, 
Yes, of course. I believe that Torah is truth, not fact. That means it's based on stories, understanding, and morality, and all those pieces that we look at quite often. But I also believe that the details are intended, right? Obedience. Okay. Tell me more. Uh, just uh, o- obedience, boundaries, something for them to think about while they're wandering away and ambivalent about this uh, move in the first place. Okay. And this gives them some purpose and structure. Okay. I like that. What else? I believe the words are intentional. And so I believe that if other parts of Torah flow in a sense of logic, when we get a curveball that feels like an unusually intense list, something that seems nearly impossible to overcome, I'll read again that on line 14, you need to make sure you have ram skins and dolphin skins. And on line 15, you need a log of wood, and the wood needs to be roughly 12 feet long. And they're in the desert. Yeah. And wide, and wide, wide, two and a half feet wide? That's not a small piece of wood. So you imagine you're just carrying wood through the desert. No, that doesn't make sense. But why would the writer say it if there wasn't some type of bigger picture to be grappled with? Yeah, Lee. Are they things that God is expecting them to have or expecting them to, like, find and get? Because I feel like we've talked before about the Mishkan being, like, sort of this, like, group project that becomes a, like, community building. It's certainly a group project, right? And that's one of the beautiful representations of it. But they are in Sinai. Where are they finding acacia wood? They're in Sinai. Haven't seen a dolphin since the last you know, uh, environmental crisis of pre-Torah time, right? Like they're, 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 they're in the desert. And they need tools to make planks. And then on top of it, let's say they find a tree. (laughs) What are you going to, wait, how are you going to produce the log? And so I'm not trying to be dismissive, but I do think if we're going to read this with a critical lens and we're going to extract a deep, deep intentional value, generally, we start with looking at if this was real. Then we always keep in the back of our head, this is morality. This is value. This is ethics. This is story. But you still have to give respect to the author to say, this feels unusually specific. And in, like, oh, sure, I'll help you. I, here are these things I need you to do first. And the and the task list is impossible. Yeah, Jody. Hang on, let me unmute. Um, so it's written, as we're told, by many people. And this is just a story. It's just a story that we feel special when we come to our tabernacle. Um, maybe we built it so beautifully that other people are attracted to it. But in the end, it's just a story written by many men. Okay. So here's the thing. I don't disagree at all. However, (laughs) I think we leave a potential piece of discovery when we immediately go to the story. Because in every good story, there is a fabulous authorship, Mm -hmm. right? 
whether it be one or 10 or 50, at some point, at that point, you'd have a great editor, right? So then you got to give props and, and credit to the editor to take all these wonderful stories and weave them together. But either way, it was chosen to make the final cut, which means I have to read this with a lens of why are we saying it? Not just that it was a story. Believe me, that's how I get around the Akedah. That's how I get around moments that make me extremely frustrated. That's how I get around realizing it was written for an audience and we're a new audience and the brilliance of Torah is that we breathe life into it. I, I agree with all of that. But when you go from possible tasks to nearly impossible tasks, you have to ask why. And so I actually turned to Breshit Rabbah to another piece of our rabbinic literature to try to understand a bit. And I'm going to, uh, Breshi Rabbah says, in the manner I, God, created the world and your body, so shall you make the tabernacle. Where is this demonstrated, you might ask? You find that the beams in the tabernacle were set in sockets, the piece we didn't quite get to yet. The ribs in the body are set with vertebrae, and the mountains of the world are set with the earth's foundations. Bereshit Rabbah is implying that in the tabernacle, the beams were covered in gold. In the body, the ribs are covered with flesh and sinews with our tat and support for the body. And in the world, trees and vegetation are spread throughout. In the tabernacle, the tapestries covered the above and two sides. Skin covers the body and covers the limbs and both sides of the ribs. And, and what happens for the earth? We have heavens. Uh, heaven covers both of earth's sides. In the tabernacle, the partition divides between the sanctuary and the holy of holies. The liver diaphragm separate the heart and the stomach, and the skies separate between the waters and the waters below. So Bereshit Rabbah says that the entire purpose of the tabernacle was to be the bridge between our individual experience and the experience of the world as a whole, that we needed a middle space to be the tabernacle. And each of the pieces that are being built represent and connect to both our body and the way in which the world works. It's interesting. This idea that they would say we cover the beams with gold just as we cover the bones with our flesh. It's, it, it's beautiful, right? And we cover yeah. the earth with vegetation. However, does it answer my question at all? No. Bereshit Rabbah gives a beautiful interpretation and leaves us just as speculative as before. Why are we given orders that are nearly impossible? Because I could go back to Bereshit Rabbah and what could we say? Sure. Cover the beam with cloth. Let's not get too specific. Sure, put the beam up. What is the beam made of? Whatever the beam is made of is what they could find in the desert, right? But no, we have intense specificity. Uh And that intense specificity can either be seen as a challenge or it can be seen as a a, a hurdle they can't overcome. And that's the, the really interesting part of starting with this. Now, you might say, Rabbi, that is a wholly unsatisfying answer that you've brought us to Bereshit Rabbah. It's a beautiful connection, but it answers none of the question. So let's turn to Maimonides then instead. Maimonides says uh, that the holy ark, the innermost part, alludes to the human heart, which is the innermost part 
of the human body. Okay, Maimonides, I like where you're going. You're still on the Bereshit Rabba train. You haven't given me any of their answers, but let's continue. The Ark was the main part of the Mishkan because it contained the, the tablets of the covenant. So too, the human heart is the main part of the body. It's the source of one's life, their knowledge, their understanding. The rabbis understood the heart to be soul, soul to be these pieces. The menorah in the Mishkan alludes to the human mind. Just as the menorah gives forth light, so the intellect enlightens the entire body's experience. The end sense of the altar alludes to the sense of smell. The sacrificial altar alludes to the intestines, the digestion of food and the entering of sustenance. And the goat's wool hanging alludes to the skin that covers the human's body. Maimonides says that the sanctuary structure resembles the human body and the human body is a sanctuary. The Asuli Hamikdash. And therefore should be treated and respected as such. If we see the human body to have parallel to the sanctuary, to the tabernacle, we must treat the human body with the utmost of respect. How do you teach a group of people to respect a communal space? You have boundaries. Boundaries. You have great rules. Rules. Sure. By the way, Maimonides was a doctor. I'm aware. <laughs> I'm aware. You can, that, that you can feel the doctor side of him. How else do you superimpose? That might be a better way of thinking about it. How do you initiate communal respect and uh, uh, a sense of elevation for a space? You make the task of building it vigorous. Right and laborious, and difficult. Because the more time and communal energy that goes into building it, when you finish it, what don't you want to happen? There's someone to fall down. <laughs> My son is obsessed with Legos right now. Yeah, of course. The problem is we don't have enough surface area in the home <laughs> to support this new obsession. Because as soon as it's built, he wants to play with it gently and put it away so his little brother can't break it. And no matter how many times I explain that he can rebuild it and that that's part of the fun, he looks at me like I have six heads because he has just put in all the heart and soul and labor and focus and determination. And he is going to safeguard it. And so here we find the first answer to our question. This would be very hard. It might even be impossible to find all these different pieces. And if they fall short, my hope is they would find the next best thing to make it happen. But some of it becomes, if it was too easy to collect the resources, they probably wouldn't have had the same experience putting it together. And if we wanna read it simply as story, you would still extract that same thing. Asking for that level of shopping list would show you that it is such a precious thing once you've put it together that you need to do everything you can to safeguard it from falling apart, from losing even a single piece. So go back to our text. Take a look at how many little pieces we're talking about. If we continue to uh, here, we've got 50 copper clasps that fit the clasps into the loops and the couple and couple to the tent so it can become a whole. There are so many little pieces of this process that as soon as it's done, we are going to go out of our way to keep it whole. 
because the writers knew of a more important fact. People neglect their health. People over push their bodies. People often forget, even really wonderful people, to love themselves when they get so busy loving others. But here, we start with your body is a sanctuary. Well, what does that mean for the obligation of how you care for your own body? Is a sanctuary just for you? It's a higher, higher purpose. Okay, but the sanctuary that we're introduced to in our text, who is the sanctuary for? It's that God may dwell there. Okay, so the first people. half, first half. Okay, good. Right? I love both these pieces. When I work with bar and bat mitzvah students, we have three bat mitzvah this weekend, and all three of them wrestled with God needs a home, but God is everywhere. Uh-huh. Right? And that's beautiful. Okay, so one part's for God, but who's it really for? The community. A sanctuary in our tradition doesn't work on a lonely island. You need community. You need gathering place. Well, what does that say when we bring it into this idea that you you yourself are sanctuary? How do we best use our own vessel? We do what is needed in our time on this earth to bring holiness to others. And you can't do that if you don't understand that your body deserves the respect from you let alone from everyone else, but first from you, that you would give if it was God's dwelling place. Okay, keep falling down the rabbit hole here. If this is God's dwelling place, what does that say about all of you? What does that say about each of us? We have godliness within us, so the potential Okay. godliness. Some say the potential of godliness inside of us. Others would go with the Kabbalist interpretation and say it's absolute When God creates the world, what happens? The vessel is shattered into billions of pieces. A shard of the divine goes into each of our souls. Beautiful piece of teaching. Beautiful teaching. Mm -hmm. That there is a shard of the divine in each of us. And therefore, our bodies must be a sanctuary because God is dwelling within us. This piece of Torah, this second triennial in Truma, that at first glance is not exciting to teach about, a shopping list, if you will, actually connects all the way back down to how you treat your body is a reflection of your understanding and acceptance of the divine, that you have a divinity within you, and that that means that you are obligated to care for your body just as you would care for the tabernacle. Can we add in your soul as well? Sure, of course. <laughs> Your body and, and, and your, your mental. Right. Well, and that, that, by the way, I think we went through it so quickly that I want to reiterate it again. Maimonides says the holy ark is the heart. It contains the tablets. It's the heartbeat. It's the source of one's life and love and all of that. But the menorah is the mind because the menorah gives forth light. Mm-hmm. Now that's very specific language. The menorah sheds light out. When you first think of your mind, what direction do you think of your mind working in? Do you share out to the world or do you process and learn the world and bring it in? You definitely do both. I think we default to thinking first we observe and learn, which is not untrue. But here, our tradition is saying, what's the actual obligation? 
that you better be prepared to shine out and share your gift and share what you know, and that, uh, that, that intellect illuminates the rest of the experience and enlightens the entire body. This overwhelming shopping list, this list of demand, I mean, you ever look at an artist's list of demands for a venue they're going to go to? I remember one time it was in the paper, I don't remember, about 10 years ago, there was an artist who wanted only green M&Ms. And it was before you could just order the green one. His intention was just to make someone sit there for hours picking the green M&Ms. You don't think so? I don't. I think the intention was to make sure that they were actually reading his writer. Ooh, that could be true, too. Because often the other thing that is in the writer are, like, very specific instructions related to safety. Security and, and, and safety. You, which is harder to sort of, like, get a quick check on. But true. You have the bowl of green M&Ms. Then, then you know they read everything. They read the writer. Fascinating. No apply that same logic here. Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, I think it applies exactly, like, if you, if you give someone this sort of, like, very specific set of instructions and they are able to execute it, then you know that they are sort of taking seriously the project. Yeah. You immediately elevate the focus intentionality of the group you interact with when you give them that stringent list. Now, I am not endorsing that every interaction in life should come with an unbelievably stubborn set of expectations. Again, that's why I'm not willing to accept this idea just that it's a story, but more that this level of focus is unique in this moment. What do some others think? Anyone have any thoughts on that? I see every one of your uh, faces either nodding or shaking or thumbs up or, but I want to, I want to hear some of your voices. Anyone else have thoughts on that piece? I'm fascinated. A couple of weeks ago, we had the song of the sea and, uh, one of the lines and that has me hamocha by Elimadonoi that yeah. we always talk about. But another line that I find fascinating is the line where they say, God is my song. And you were talking about radiating from inside. And so for me as well, part of what we do is we try and sing a song of God in our lives, reflect that sanctuary within us. I think to some extent, and and putting it together requires, yes, a list of materials, but it also requires care. And I think that's an important part of this as well, the building of the sanctuary. Now, isn't it Bezalel who ultimately is in charge of building the sanctuary? So, but which I find interesting regarding this, and that is the reason Bezalel is chosen is because he has inspiration in him. And so the sanctuary, I think, becomes not just a list of materials, but also requires wisdom to put it all together. And Bezalel probably adds something beyond the materials. Because if it was just the materials and the instructions, to me that's kind of soulless. And I think that there's a human component of adding something to it, which you can project yeah. to, to our souls as well. By the way, what we're doing in this moment is we're recognizing that there is no straightforward answer here. 
but not in the way of like, well, I guess there's multiple interpretations. Yeah, okay, of course, I agree. A Torah study would be quite dull if there was one interpretation. Why would we do it every single year then? But what I mean by that is that we are in a moment where we are recognizing right now that all of this can be purely symbolic, that can be motivating to the way in which we think of self-care, and it also throws into a whole shift how we hold relationship to God. Because if God is everywhere, which is why the dwelling place then becomes a, a question, and we're going to go as far as to say that that spark of the divine is in each of our souls, and when you pray to God, where are you praying to? There's no right answer. But where are you praying to? Mm. Are you praying within? Mm. Are you quieting and calming the inner voice? Are you praying out? Are you trying to collectively join the collective voice? What directionality are you praying when you sing? Look, the reason that Jewish musicians still make new music to this day the reason we have services like when Rabbi Amy does Kabbalat Shabbat or tonight we have Shabbat on the rocks or when we use different music, even when we do our Hanukkah Shabbat tier, and this year was Mama Mia Shabbat, when we add music to prayer, what we are attempting to do is to reach God differently. But is that inner, out? What, what direction? What does that relationship with God end up looking like? This portion breaks open the restriction that you can't see this as an internalized process. Because the minute we connect the Mishkan and the tabernacle, the human body, which was before 26, again, it was 25-8. God, make me a sanctuary. Let my body be a sanctuary. When we get there, it immediately unlocks the rest of this. And so there's something really phenomenal about a text that often we feel like we have to build in the, the really beautiful interpretation around what could otherwise be seen as a, as a plainer text. Not this piece, not 26. 26 is hiding in plain sight, is, is sharing and recognizing the humanity that needs to be built into this experience for this thing to be elevated right there in plain sight, which is also really powerful. Lee, I agree. If we see ourselves as having uh, the divine within us, we tend to see ourselves as precious and therefore more deeply respect ourselves and then to others. We have the ability to show an immense love for this whole world. But the truth is that love has to start with us. Mm -hmm. How often... Does someone ask how you're doing and you're defaulted to talk about the fact that we're not sleeping well? <laughs> and at one point, that's a sense of pride, right? When people go, oh, three kids, right? One of the first things is like, you must not be getting any sleep. And it's said with a chuckle, it's meant with intent, entire love. When I, when I find people say, how are you doing? Uh, I automatically feel they want me to ask how they're doing. Right. <laughs> but that's okay with me. That part's okay. I think the problem is when we default to share our suffering mm. as our badge of honor. Right, right. Mm. Instead of sharing our self-care as our badge of honor. How are you doing? I've really made sure that I found a different balance this week. Now, maybe you haven't, in which case definitely don't say that because the next thing we need to do is a false pretense for ourselves. But why do we naturally infer that? 
So how do you answer, how are you doing? Don't ask. <laughs> don't ask. <laughs> don't ask. You don't want to know. You know I what? answered good enough. Good enough? Okay. Good you know, I often tell people this is one of the first things I learned when I moved to Israel. Niceties are different. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Right? Here, if you're having a bad day, there's a book called uh, Grumpy Monkey. I read it to my son about four days a week because he's learned how to say the phrase at the end of each page, which is, I'm not grumpy, and being his chest. So now we have to read the book a lot. But Grumpy Monkey is a wonderful book because each page, someone says, what's, what's the matter, Jim? You don't look happy. You're not smiling. So he smiles. What's the matter, Jim? You don't look happy. Your eyes seem bunchled. So he widens his eyebrows. And he does everything he can to look and present happy until he realizes He's not. And he goes off and he sits in a grumpy spot and he starts to feel better immediately that he can recognize that he's in a grumpy mood and give himself the opportunity to not just be smiling walking around the streets. And I, and I, I know that seems like a, like a detour from what I was saying, but that's something I learned in Israel too. When you walk around the streets, if you're in a little bit of a bad mood and you put a little bit of a sour look on your face, no one asks you how you're doing. <laughs> They only ask you when you smile. But here, we're trained that the nicety has to be above it. How are you doing? I'm fine. Things are good. Can't complain. Sure, I can. Good enough, right? There's no knocking it, but these are all things because we feel obligated to answer. Hmm. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I'm saying maybe we need to reorient that a little bit. Our tradition Thousands of years have been telling us to treat our body as sacred as we would treat a magnificent sacred space. Can anyone on this Zoom or anyone who will later listen to this podcast really say that they always treat their body to that same level of care and and compassion and, and delicateness that we do of something sacred? Yeah, I'm not going to answer that question, but I have a question related to that. It is not the tradition in Judaism that people who study all the time or are extremely from, okay, and our, and our Orthodox friends take care of their bodies that well. In fact, no. many, Mm-mm. and I've I've always wondered about that because, you know, you see many people, and I'm start smoking, name smoking, um, and this relates not just to people who are very quote religious, but other people as well. But there is a pretty but people high who ostensibly, you know, are very observant and very from. That doesn't seem to be one of the laws. So here's what I'll say: I understand that you can't do them all. Okay, right? <laughs> it's actually intentionally designed. Right. You can't do it all. Right. Something gets missed. So if you lit, if you follow halacha to the T, then you probably have a little less time to deep dive and find the interpretation that's really there. But you're right. Yeah. How are you chain smoking if you're supposed to take care of your body? It's complicated. The answer would be these other things I'm doing, they're what actually build a relationship with God. This, this is, this isn't going to be the thing. My other question is, yes, and then I, and then as difficult as, as well. it is to find God within ourselves, okay, which, which has to do with feeling loved. Yeah. Okay. Which is difficult for many people. I look out at some people and I have a lot of trouble finding love God for them. in them. 
I know I'm supposed to find God in everybody. I'm going to park that. I'm going to park that. that difficult. I'm we're going to get back to that question. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to make this. Do this. Do this. Hand is up. Or after that, we will. We, we will. Yes, we will, we will bring back to that. I've always looked at the laws of kashrut as one of the ways we can respect our bodies, and dealing with the laws of kashrut in a reconstructionist manner, I have found that some of the laws are no longer valid, and and I keep kosher by respecting what I eat and what I put into my body, uh, and by the amount of food I put into my body and the exercise. But never eating shellfish, for instance, I don't have it in my house, and I won't have pork in my house. That is my sanctuary. My my own sanctuary is my home, so I don't have it in my house. But out if I'm served food by somebody who's very generously prepared a meal, I eat it. It doesn't bother me at all. But I think if we look at the laws of kashrut as another method of protecting our bodies and treating our bodies with respect, it gives new meaning to those laws. I think we can look at all of the laws as a way to revert back to this very idea that things are both the law itself, the self-care of it, and the communal care of it. And we can see that through any of our laws and any of our experiences. And so with that same piece, let's go back to that question, Bert. If part of what we learn is how we take care of ourselves, but part of what we learn is how we take care of others, what happens when we discover others we don't think deserve to be taken care of? What happens when we discover others who we can't seem to find the godliness in them after interacting with them? What do we do there? What do we think? Do we have to become stronger ourselves to compensate? Okay. And we can treat them with respect with having, without having to deal with them very much. We do sometimes have to eliminate intimate friendships with people because we discover that they have no respect for anybody else. Well, we discover that they might be, they might be detrimental to our sanctuary. Yes, right. But exactly. let's, let's put God in this moment. Who here likes the choice God made with Noah's Ark? who has a comfortable time standing by with a God that wiped the world clean and then afterwards said, okay, I won't do that again. <laughs> That's what we sometimes say, too, when, when we've done something wrong. I'm not going to do that again. Right. Well, I, you know, we're, we're at a point where we're at war. And I, I heard, uh, it was either a lecture or something, about Jewish law regarding uh, someone who comes to kill you. And that is you not only can, but you're obliged to kill them first before they kill you, a rodef. So I guess you're killing then a piece of God. But you asked, how, how do we cope with it? There's also within the Jewish tradition this idea that you come first and your own safety comes first and you're not required to sacrifice yourself so, somebody, so you, you hit on one of the really important pieces here. If there is a godliness in everyone, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that you can't recognize negativity. Mm-hmm. It means that you have to hold and understand the ramification and the weight of an action, right? It, it's it's like Judaism doesn't say there is never a moment in which you should take a life. 
but it certainly points out to the weight of what that decision would be, right? And, and I'll go even further. There was uh, one of the founders. I want to say he was the founders. This is I'm I'm embarrassed that I don't remember the exact detail of either uh, the Bloods or the Crips, and he was on death row for many 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 years. And in that time, he, he found change and he wrote children's books and he like really like he he changed the person do we want to believe that someone is forever the worst version of themselves or do we want to believe that that godliness means there's actually always a potential doesn't mean in the moment that we have to see them as any better than an evil person a terrorist or whatever put enter any of the things you're like i'm trained to to not support this person Sure, don't change that. This is really good guidance. You should still be anti-terrible people. I don't want this to be the point of Torah study. The question is, are they beyond repair? And I think what our text says is if there is a godliness within us, that no one is ever truly beyond repair. They might be in that moment unacceptable, and therefore what has to be done has to be done. But the question is, is someone forever beyond repair? And we believe in tshuva, which means our tradition says, no, you may not get to go back to just living life the way anyone else does, but there is, in fact, a level of forgiveness. There is an ability for you to build back, and that's inherent inside of our tradition. Uh, Alex. Uh, you just hit on what I was going to say, which is this, our capacity to forgive and that if we have an understanding that though someone may have lost their way or, you know, yeah, though someone may have lost their way, they still have this recognizable, they're still human and thus have a piece of godliness in them. And so how willing are we to expand our capacity to forgive if we could recognize if only perhaps in a different context or different circumstances, this human could have done something different. Any one story could be entirely different if their circumstances were different. Yeah. Ricky Williams. And I, and I think it connects, yeah. sorry, am I still, un, am I unmuted? Crip, thank you. Yeah, you're I, still, I, still unmuted. I was saying it and I think it still uh, connects to so much in regard, you know, I'm not here to, you know, share necessarily my opinions on the current state of Israel or any of that. But, you know, do we really have the capacity and or are we required to write perspective, take and try to see the godliness in all who are involved in this situation? Is that possible when such horror, you know, has been committed or in a terrorist act? I think there's a difference between forgiveness with a capital F, if you want and acceptance of behavior. They're not necessarily, they're not the same thing. Or reconciliation. They're not the same thing. Uh, forgiveness, to me at least, is letting go of the hatred inside of me. Forgiveness is, that that's how I define it. But that doesn't mean that I accept, I mean, there's no uh, capital punishment in Israel, but we did make an exception with Eichmann. And I'm sure we would have made an exception with Adolf Hitler had he been, you know, again, we're going to the extreme. But and we're dealing right now with a situation where Israel is executing people 
basically. They're going out to execute the Hamas leaders. Of course, it's war, and the Torah treats war differently from uh, regular personal interactions. But it's hard to, you know... But so let's boil this down. I hope you're incredibly conflicted from this morning's Torah study. I hope there's a little bit of... What did we actually just learn? Did we learn that this is how the the Israelites were to make the Mishkan? Did we learn that this was the way the author was pushing that our body and our the sanctity of human life needs to be elevated to that of sanctuary? Did we learn that there's a nuance inside of how we're supposed to interact? With the, I, I don't know. Because part of what this tradition does is it makes it so they're not going to give you concrete answers in this moment. It's like the question of where is God? And as long as you can be open to every version of where is God, then we're going to keep being able to navigate and figure out how to best interact through this world. I'm glad to know that you're not on triennial anymore. (laughs) However, I'm very glad that I looked at the triennial this year because I don't know that I would have dove this deeply into Exodus 26. I think I would have skipped over it and said, I can do without the dolphin skins and acacia wood. Let's move to the next part. And I wouldn't have discovered that Parisa Bereshit Rabbah. And I wouldn't have discovered Maimonides being able to connect so brilliantly these different pieces of the ark and the menorah and how are we operate. Our tradition hides some of the most brilliant things inside of what often can be overlooked as uh, laborious or burdensome text. And I, I think it's brilliant. 